Hello, and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Gelgrant, and I'm joined today by Stephen Anderson. And we're going to be discussing his new paper published with Jane Morris in BJ Psych Advances, an update on eating disorders. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us, your most recent paper, it's about eating disorders and their diagnosis and management. Give us a little summary of the key points of the paper. Yes, certainly. So it's it's great to have a paper in uh, BJ Psych Advances working in the, the faculty exec. We're constantly looking at how to how we improve medical education in eating disorders. So myself and Jane Morris uh, wrote this paper and part of the background to it was that Jane Morris is currently chairing a sign guideline committee on eating disorders. So that's the, the Scottish Intercollegiate Guideline Network, uh, looking at guidelines specifically for eating disorder services in Scotland. So that was part of the reason we wrote this review paper and also partly because of the, the ongoing work within the faculty looking at education and training. So we know from um, a study that was done by Agnes Aiton, who is the, the chair of the faculty, that medics, the whole way through medical school and postgraduate training, on average have about two hours of teaching on eating disorders which is not very much for, for conditions that are fairly common. So, yeah, so we, we, we're doing a lot of work within the faculty on education training. And it's, it's not just for medics across other disciplines as well. Nursing and psychology is very limited teaching and training in eating disorders. And I guess that's been highlighted in the recent coroner's report and also the, the Parliamentary Health Service Ombudsman report. So we, myself and Jane were quite keen to just to have a, a review article in advances. Well, thank you very much. And I think the point that you make is a, a, an extremely interesting one that, of course, as, as most psychiatrists know, eating disorders, are, 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 well, anorexia in particular is a condition that has an extremely high mortality rate and results in a large amount of healthcare service usage, both in terms of psychiatric services and mainstream services. I suppose maybe one reason that that, there's, that that I suppose there's not so much teaching and, and training on it in the course of general medical education is that it does sometimes feel slightly bewildering as to where to start when faced as a general doctor or even as a general psychiatrist with someone who's suffering in, with, with an eating disorder. What would your advice be? Do you think there's a sort of general approach that can be taken with these patients or is that too difficult and general a question? It's quite a difficult question. So I guess... I mean, the, the issue is that people with eating disorders present to all specialties across medicine. So they may be seen initially in fertility services or gastroenterology at the front door in A&E in general practice. And we know from patients and carers that when they do try to get help, the eating disorder is not always picked up or the, the professional that they see looks at their weight and bloods and tells them that things are okay because their weight and bloods are okay. So I guess you mentioned anorexia and the high mortality rate. And I guess when people talk about eating disorders, the first thing they think of is anorexia, whereas bulimia and binge eating disorder are far more common than anorexia. Um, but eating disorders, everything are generally set up more to manage low-weight anorexia. But, but you know, from, from medical complications from all the eating disorders, people will present to all specialties. That's really interesting. That's something that people might not realise that um, that bulimia is is more common than anorexia. 
like I, I, am I right in thinking that like, this might be completely wrong that anorexia probably still causes the larger burden of healthcare usage, or is that completely incorrect? It, yes, it probably does because of the yeah, so smaller numbers of patients, but may take up more healthcare usage, and that's partly because of the undiagnosed and untreated population with eating disorders. So we know from population studies that probably half of the people in the population with an eating disorder are not seen. And I guess if if people try to get help and are told that their weight's okay, their bloods are okay, basically they're being told that they're not sick enough. Mm. They get sent away and try to lose more weight in order to be able to, to get seen. So there, there could be huge amounts mm. of guilt, shame, stigma attached to bulimia and binge eating disorders, much more hidden and can last much longer. It's, someone can have a, a bulimic illness for 20, 30, 40 years and nobody might know about it. Something that's always been interesting to me is I suppose most doctors and definitely most psychiatrists have a view of uh, the sort of typical factors that might contribute to someone developing anorexia. And those are often, you may, or may, you may or may not agree with these, but those in most doctors' minds are probably things to do with difficult childhood experiences, perhaps coming from families with high expectations, more common typically in, in young female patients than male. I suppose what most people don't have in their mind is such a clear image of what it is that contributes to someone developing bulimia. Do you think it's sort of a similar set of risk factors or of psychopathologies, or do you think it's something slightly different? Yeah, so the kind of transdiagnostic model of eating disorders suggests that the, the pathology is the same across all eating disorders, with the core psychopathology being the over-evaluation of eating shape and weight and their control. But as you, as you say, we really don't have great understanding of the etiology of eating disorders. They're often described in papers and textbooks as multi complex, multifactorial illnesses. And it would be great to zoom forward 100 years to see what we understand about eating disorders. There's so many genetic, biological comp components, neurobiological changes. There's work ongoing with looking at changes in the, the gut microbiota. I guess one thing that has changed significantly in the last 40 years is our nutrition. So anorexia has probably always existed. Bulimia and binge eating disorder, much more recent phenomena and look like they go along with changes in our nutrition. So we have far, far more highly processed foods now and much easier access to foods. So as you know, bulimia was first, first described by Gerald Russell in, in 1979. Uh, binge eating disorder is more recent even than that and that it tends to go along with the, the changes in our nutrition and also in obesity. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting point because the rates, so the, the sort of population prevalence of anorexia and, and of all eating disorders, they're quite different in different countries across the world, aren't they? Yes. And do, do you think that, that what's contributing to that difference is sociocultural differences? You know, of course, in, in many Western countries, in Europe, the typical ideal body image is thin. Yeah. I, don't, I, I think I'm right in thinking that in countries where the ideal body image is, is, is not so thin, that the prevalence of anorexia is not so high. So do, do you think that those differences are due to societal factors like that? They're certainly involved, yeah. So Anne Becker published studies from Fiji looking at changes in eating disorder pathology and eating disorder symptoms following the introduction of Western television in more remote parts of Fiji in 1995, before which there had really been few, if any, reports of eating disorders. After the introduction of Western TV, 
that changed quite significantly. So culture is very important. And I guess in these days, with so much use of social media, everybody's sharing photographs of themselves that are highly edited. If, if you take a selfie, you probably take 15 or 20, edit them before they go on Instagram or wherever they go. So people are not seeing real life in social media. Everything, everything's instant, everything's highly edited. So media and social media is, are important influences and they're everywhere. So I, I don't know if you've seen, but Dove, Dove the Cosmetic Company have produced a couple of videos looking at um, digital... Manipulation of pictures. The yeah, yeah. Of pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a male one and a female one. And the people that, that end up in the advert, you would not recognise from the model at the start of the process. But that's all we see, and we see it in front of us everywhere. Everything's about diets, losing weight. There's, I guess, there's mm -hmm. so much fat stigma in society as well. There is the start of a bit of a, a trend towards acknowledging that uh, social media is an idealised version of reality, isn't there? I've seen on Instagram a few weeks ago, you can see a hashtag, hashtag Sanity Sunday, in which you see, I don't know if you've seen this, but you'll see some uh, sort of big time influencers will share unedited photos on a Sunday just to show you, the user how um, how different those pictures are to, to, the, to the real thing. And I, I suppose, obviously, that social media has contributed to changes in how people view their self-esteem in, in, in so many different ways. What, what advice do you give to your patients about social media use? Do you just sort of say that it's not real? I'm sure you know that. Or do you specifically say stay off it when you're feeling in, in a difficult phase of your illness? Yeah, I guess it's, it's different for everyone. The so colleagues at the... The Maudsley have and the Freed Service, which is the first episode of Rapid Early Intervention in Eating Disorders. So they've published online a kind of animation video looking at social media use in eating disorders. And that, that's really interesting. So I sometimes share that with people. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult mm -hmm. area. Do you, do you find that social media use is, is prominent amongst people that you're seeing in, in your service? Maybe more so in the general population or, or not particularly? I'm not sure if it's more prevalent than in the general population, but yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be pretty prevalent everywhere. Isn't it? Yeah, I guess that's a difficult question to know what the population yeah. prevalence is. And I guess, yeah, lots of people with eating disorders say that they, their feeds seem to be swamped with adverts and promotions for diet products and exercise. Mm -hmm. So there are algorithms built into mm -hmm. Instagram and Facebook that are targeting people potentially with eating disorders with more potentially harmful content. So let's talk a little bit about management of eating disorders, I suppose, from the perspective of a uh, you know, general, general doctor, I, I guess. So I suppose the cornerstone of eating disorder management outside the acute phase of, you know, where maybe somebody might need a medical intervention is psychotherapy that's correct yeah, yeah and in and that's slightly different in the adolescent population to in the adult population yeah so the the best evidence-based treatment in the adolescent population is family-based treatment which has been less studied in adults there are some studies of younger adults and family-based work with couples but less evidence in adults because i guess family-based treatment is quite difficult to actually engage with fully, so parents are asked to take back control of the child's nutrition um, mm. completely, and that's more difficult to do for adults. So that's that's 
that's part of the reason. That... Talk me through, because I generally don't know, and I'm sure many people listening won't know. What What is the sort of mod, the broad model of family therapy for eating disorders? You said that, that you ask the parents to take control of the child's nutrition. It, it, is that the yeah. sort of cornerstone of, of the therapy, or is it more about acknowledging what might have led to this position? I'm not quite sure how it typically is carried out. Yeah, so I... I only work with adults. I'm not trained in FBT. I'm not trained in okay. adolescent psychiatry. However, FBT has three phases, and the first phase is essentially the parents taking back control of the nutrition to ensure regular and complete nutrition. Further on in treatment, then underlying and maintaining mechanisms are looked at more. And I guess in, in the treatment of adults, as you may know from the NICE guideline, there are three psychological therapies that are recommended so there's there's mantra which is the moduli anorexia nervosa treatment in adults sscm which is specialist supportive clinical management and there's cbt for eating disorders i guess what's often very important is having a a full formulation of what is going on for the person that you're working with mm. and look at the, the the predisposing and maintaining factors and what about drug treatments or pharmacology? It is not uncommon to see people with anorexia prescribed antidepressants comorbidly, whether they're prescribed for sort of depressive symptoms or as part of some, some sort of anorexia treatment plan is, is a bit unclear. What do you think? Do you think there's a role for any pharmacology as a primary treatment of eating disorders or only to treat comorbid symptoms? Yeah, so I mean, comorbidity is very common and comorbid conditions should be treated as they would be in the general population. In terms of specific treatments, there's limited evidence that olanzapine can be of some benefit in people with anorexia. It tends to be around managing the anxiety and agitation and distress that goes along with eating. No great evidence that it helps with underlying cognitions. Mm. And I, I guess working with eating disorders, if you try and discuss olanzapine, with somebody with an eating disorder and they look at the side effect list, the first thing they will see is weight gain. Yeah. So it's often very difficult to try and encourage people to, to take psychotropic medication when weight gain may be a side effect. It tends not to have that effect in eating disorders, but that's that's the first thing that people see. I guess in, in bulimia, there's been evidence for longer that high-dose SSRIs can be of benefit in reducing binges. As a primary treatment for uh, the condition itself? Yeah, I, mean, I think the previous NICE guideline had suggested if the person is not able to engage in psychological therapy or that's not available, then an SSI could be considered. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I suppose something that's a big problem in all, in all corners of psychiatry where the ideal treatment pathway involves psychotherapy, particularly one-to-one -one sessions that, that you want to go on for a period of time, is, uh, as you've just mentioned, availability. I, I guess specialist eating disorder services are a bit thin on the ground. I mean, how... How many people do you think are, are able to access these sorts of specialist treatments? Yes, what we know is that early intervention is helpful. The aim is to try and see people within three years of development of symptoms. That's part of the FREED model that I, I talked about earlier that shows benefits. So we, yeah, so early intervention is helpful, but we know that particularly with bulimia and binge eating disorder, patients might not present for many, many years. By which time they're much more stuck in their illness. The pandemic has obviously had a big impact on 
treatment. So a lot of work is being done by video, by Zoom, at the moment with less face-to-face work. There has been an impact on actual eating disorder symptoms and referrals because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So people who had pretty well-managed meal plans, who were felt in control of what they were eating, what they were doing. At the start of the pandemic, everybody was bulk buying, supermarkets were empty, people weren't able to get their mm-hmm. safe foods or foods that were part of their structured meal plan and it's caused huge difficulty. So we've seen an increase an increase in referrals and an increase in more significantly unwell people during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose that's a, a sort of a, a hidden knock-on effect of uh, everything that's been going on. I just picked up there on, on three years as the timescale to see someone for, for a sort of an early intervention model. It seems like a very long time. Beat um, published a study. So Beat is the UK eating disorder charity. They published a study two or three years ago suggesting that it can be a year and a half from the development of any kind of eating disorder symptoms to the person thinking that there may be an issue. And then possibly another year and a half before they try to ask for help. And then there are other delays after that when they don't get the help, the help's not available, or the eating disorder is not picked up. So Janet Treasure at the Maudsley has published work on a staging model of eating disorders, which is where the three-year early intervention comes from. So there are concepts in eating disorders about when, when an eating disorder may become severe and enduring, when, when treatment is most effective. So basically you're trying to get in there as early as possible before neural pathways become more ingrained and change becomes more difficult. How, how good is the evidence in general for treatment benefit in eating disorders? So bulimia and binge eating disorder, the evidence is, is much better. I guess it's more difficult with anorexia because there are fewer patients, so trials are much smaller. There's much more medical risks. So people may drop out because they need to be admitted to hospital or because of the medical complications. So the trials are tend to be underpowered in, a, an, in anorexia. And I, I suppose that it's very difficult in that case to sort of, especially you know, re- researching the treatment effects of psychological therapies is notoriously difficult in all corners of psychiatry. Mm. Uh, and I suppose with the added difficulty of having quite a, uh, a, a population, as you say, that are quite predisposed to becoming unwell or dropping in and out of uh, studies, that probably is a great challenge. Has there been any significant change in the last 10 or 15 years, say, in how eating disorders are managed in the UK? Yes, so there have been, in adolescence, particularly in England, there has been a rollout of specialist eating disorder teams within CAMS. So that has had a big impact um, with four-week targets imposed. So there, there hasn't been a parity with adult services at present, um, and there hasn't been the same rollout of training within adult services. So that was, that was a big piece of work that was done. Mm. in England. Just to, to finish off, maybe, there's a section in your paper where you talk about emerging treatments for eating disorders. I mean, I, I, obviously, these are things that are still in the research stage that are just absolutely miles away from a clinic. And uh, anyone that knows anything about the history of emerging treatments in neuroscience crossing over into the psychiatry clinic probably be quite sceptical as to uh, uh, the timescale in which these are going to cross. But some of these things are are, are quite sort of invasive. Um, you, know, you touch on the idea that, that uh, psychosurgery or deep brain stimulation might be possibilities for uh, eating disorders. Mm. I mean, do you think things like this will ever be uh, clinically useful? There are ongoing trials of 
deep brain stimulation. So there's one in Oxford, which Rebecca Park is working, uh, which is leading. And it, there's small numbers of patients tend to be have been unwell for long periods of time, but with significant obsessive compulsive symptoms or comorbidity. Um, so it's that that kind of end of the spectrum that are being involved in, in those kind of treatments. More recently, uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation targeting similar brain areas. So there's there's been a, a recent trial in uh, at the Maudsley looking at RTMS, which is obviously less in, less invasive. And some of the, the kind of outcomes from that were published at our recent faculty conference last month. Yeah. So there again, the the, the tend to be more benefits from those kind of treatments for depressive symptoms and obsessive compulsive mm. symptoms. Which I guess are very uh, uh, common in this population, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. In psychosurgery, I mean, there has been there have been quite large studies done, particularly in China. Um, there have been colleagues in the National Hospital for Neurosurgery and Neuroscience in London looking at a trial for neurosurgery, again for people with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa so mm -hmm. again these kind of treatments miss out the bulk population of people with eating disorders who often think that they're left behind because if, if you talk about eating disorders and that's what people see anorexia of course of course well Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast that's been a very interesting discussion and eating disorders is, as you say a, a very common illness that is perhaps slightly underrepresented certainly in medical training and, and maybe in uh, clinical treatment pathways also Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.